we, we, you and I, and all three of us spoke about this before uh, in our previous conversation, in, in that uh, the, there is this illusion of consciousness as well as the reality of consciousness and, and that it's not a permanent state. And this is part of the, the trap is that, oh, you know, you're, you're enlightened. And that's why I said I have the sign. I used to be enlightened, but I'm all right now. It's because it keeps me awake. It keeps me reminding myself, oh, you're nodding off here, right? I'm having a fight with my missus about what? <laughs> what? Like, you know, am I fighting to be right or am I fighting about, or am I fighting for what's, what's honest and loving and truthful? Yeah, you know, I'm fighting to be right. Okay, so I need to give that up. So, yeah, I get all that. Um, Let's sort of go down this road a, a little bit further and because you brought it up, so I'm going to go there. Um, we had talked about how I had grown up in poverty and around addiction and violence and crime and all those kinds of things. And you did too, uh, Rhiannon. Um, well, how did you grow up, Jeff? What was your background? Because I want to come back to Rhiannon's as well in a moment. But tell, tell me a little bit about yours. Sure. Because you're an academic, right? Um, yeah. and, and you're the one sitting there with the Buddhist beads around your neck and the bangles on your hand and, and you know, looking very unacademic. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I love that, by the way, because it's, it's the willingness to step in. What, what kind of world did you grow up in? So where I grew up, it was an interesting uh, situation. I grew up in, in Montreal. And uh, at that time, when I was growing up in the early 90s, there was a lot of you know, tension that was happening in that particular part of the world around referendums and mm. different things like that. So being uh, an English speaking person in an English speaking family, we encountered a lot of issues growing up because of the fact that we didn't speak the dominant language in that particular province, um, which is an interesting conversation to have in and of itself around uh, English-speaking Caucasians being discriminated against in this country and having to leave a province to go to another province because of discrimination in the workplace. My dad was being discriminated uh, at work because he didn't speak French and had to come to Ontario as a result of uh, economic reasons. So yeah, I had this yeah. conversation with somebody recently where I talked about is racism uh, limited to color? I asked, that's the question I asked. And I said, listen, I was the only Jew in a secular school and every day I got my ass kicked. Yeah. Um, I was as white as everybody else. Mm. Uh, my, my name was not particularly weird. Uh, my last name at least wasn't particularly weird. So why was I getting a snot beaten on me? Cause I was, cause I was different and that's what isms are. It's you're different. So, you know, you, when you talk about being a English speaking white family in a French province that was trying to break away from Canada at that time uh, and be its own place and feeling that that discrimination that's an important piece in and of itself yeah. I, I want you to go on from there it's an uncomfortable truth within the context of where we are right now in the in the path towards total equality within the conversation around diversity inclusion is that that is no, we can't be talking about that right now. Well, let's now. call it out because yeah. you are a white man. And right mm -hmm. now, the only group that is allowed to be publicly shamed and pulled apart are white men. And this yeah. is okay. But this yeah. is not okay. And so it's, we're in a... Well, I think, hold on a second. I, th I, think we, I think we need a little bit of, you know, us white guys need a bit of a... 
wake wake the hell up for you know because I think there is a lot of entitlement there and a lot of assume agree and I have experienced that entitlement sure experienced what that programming is um but I'm also raising two young white men yeah I'm a mother of two young boys and in this climate when I see especially the younger generation of young men white black you name it growing up I feel that men are in a, a place where they don't understand where they fit in and belong. We're doing Absolutely. a lot of, we're actually, you know, you can't, you're encouraging one group over the other instead of encouraging everybody to come and lift and actually have a paradigm shift in the way that we, you know, communicate, come together. And so again, it's these different layers when we get stuck into these particular conversations where, you know, you've been the privileged group for, you know, X many years. So now it's time for you to go to the bottom. That's not the answer either. It's about no. how can we actually collectively and collaboratively come to a new space? And so and when that's Jeff why truth and reconciliation is so important because it's just, that's the truth of what happened. And now we can be in a position to, you know, explore what that is. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. but right there is, is this, I think you just hit something that is vital is again, we're back in the, in the ego conversation, but this ability to apologize. Mm -hmm. And when I say apologize, I don't mean I'm sorry. I mean, genuinely, you know, uh, feel the compassion, feel the, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And, and here's why, and here's what I'm willing to try and do about this moving forward, whether that's in your primary marriage or whether that's in your uh, business relationships or whether that's as a nation, you know, one of the things I, you know, people say all kinds of things about Trump and I'll say, you know, not a fan, but if there's one thing I'm a least fan of is that he has an inability to apologize. And he's actually said it. I don't apologize. Mm -hmm. That for me shows sociopathic behavior as well as narcissism, but it shows that, and that's a definitely a danger. And when you've made a screw up and you come out, I mean, there was a, uh, a senator in the U.S. who came out and he had done blackface and, you know, and he said, yeah, you know, I did do it. Okay, cool fine. You know, I, I, am I going to do it again? No. Okay, great. You know, Justin supposedly enlightened and they said, well, he should have known better because he was the son of a prime minister and he should have known better. Yeah. You know, I, I'm still willing to go with, if you are apologizing genuinely and you're willing to step into that, that's a different gig. So how do we, how do you guys think we, we, we get, even to the place of considering, let's just use this as a, a concept, uh, an economic concept. How do we get to the place of economically apologizing for being greedy pigs who will rape and pillage the planet and, and uh, communities that are much smaller than ours or less powerful than ours, whether that's uh, the uh, people who live in the in the Amazon region, whether that's people who live in the cacao fields, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, of Colombia, whether that's uh, the Afghani's or, or you know, wherever it's been, where we have put the dollar higher value than the people the or the planet. Yeah. Yeah, How do we get? to that place because i think that really that's the essence of what we're talking about here 100%. With, with with conscious economics with what you guys are about 
that's the place is to is to say i like money i like a lifestyle um i like all these things that money buys but i need to be understand that i'm part of the problem that you vote as you were saying earlier rihanna we vote with our dollars we vote with our feet um not just when on the ballot box so how would you guys suggest that we get to that place I, if I can jump in first, Thank you. first, I love this idea of an economic apology. I think that's so brilliant because Thank that's you. exactly, um, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's the way that we can actually um, show the truth behind what we are trying to propose is actually to have an economic shift. And so the way that we see that happening Um, And especially I've done a lot of work with First Nations um, and Indigenous communities across this country. And truth and reconciliation is really deeply embedded into what we're talking about when we talk about conscious capitalism. And here's why. Um, I think that a lot of the, you know, tribes in the ancient um, knowledge and wisdom that is held by the first people of this nation and around the world hold... um, hold a balance of understanding around community building, around um, mind-body-spirit connection, around being able to work with cycles in the planet in order Mm -hmm. to thrive. And Mm -hmm. when we, through colonialism and the rest, stole that away and stole that way of life away and came in with a notion of how to make things better that was based a lot on greed and all of the things that you said, we've lost a part, uh, a very integral part of something that we need to build back into the whole again. So what does that look like? What does an economic apology look like to me? It looks like, and, and Jeff has said this really beautifully before, having a pharmaceutical company have indigenous people around the table talking about plants and plant medicine and whatever else and how to actually come together to learn together to actually be equals to not see that the people that have not been able to participate thus far fully in our economic engine that they don't continue to be put aside that we actually figure out a way and those lived experience those traumas those things to be able to pull in to raise the consciousness of the planet of Mm -hmm. to have those ideas at the table so it's part of it, definitely. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, with talking about that economic apology, what you're touching on is, you know, the truth behind it. But to actually be able to stand up and do that, you're, you're in a place of authenticity. And mm-hmm. that's extremely important to move this paradigm forward where you're, you know, in your authentic space and you're aware of what's happened in the past and what's happened before you and what's happening still now and recognizing what that is and starting with the conversation around what can we do together to to help this because you know through colonialism people have been put in a place of disadvantage and we can't start to try to uh, reconcile that by having one-sided conversations where the colonials are saying, this is what we need to do to make it better. You have to invite everybody to the table and you know, harness that collective knowledge and that collective experience and do that healing that needs to, to happen first before we can explore anything uh, that's gonna happen afterwards towards to get to that you know, uh, utopian conscious economic world. 
So, so let's go back because I was asking you earlier, uh, um, and we got tangents, my fault, I took us there, um, about how you grew up, and, um, and which seems to be, uh, you know, as you went on your academic path, seems to be quite different than where you are. So tell yeah. us a little bit more about that. So growing up, um, you know, I found myself in uh, a college program at 19 years old that was something that I didn't want to do uh, anymore and having not really been outside of the North American context and understanding the privilege that uh, comes with holding a Canadian passport and mm. not recognizing what that is until I you know, traveled outside of our borders into the emerging market and then having a look at how the rest of the world lived and through that experience uh, made me recognize what we have here in this country and you know what that passport in my pocket affords me because you know I dropped out of college and moved to to a Costa Rican jungle at 19 years old <laughs> trying to figure out what I wanted to do and you know walking through uh, the roads in that time I saw how people lived and Costa Rica isn't uh, a severely impoverished nation like some of like the, a lot of the work that I do in Nepal but I saw people that were you know slaving in the hot sun for you know 16 hours a day that would give their left arm for the opportunities that I was squandering so I moved back to Canada really quickly I went to Ryerson University in the business program I was a full-time student at night and I was a full-time, uh, I was working in startups. I worked in startups. Uh, I've been working with entrepreneurs for 20 years. I don't look like I have over 20 years of experience of industry, but I, um, you know, went through that grind of 65, 70 hours a week, pushing myself, flying all over the world, managing factories in China, remotely from Canada, you know, flying and getting you know, accounts, you know, all over the world, Europe, all over Asia, South America, Mexico, and getting to a point of being successful and then transitioning into an academic world, because being a millennial, I didn't like what I was seeing in industry. I didn't right. like the exploitation. I didn't like what I was seeing in some of the factories that I was uh, touring in emerging markets and made the transition to uh, working in academia, still keeping my finger on the pulse of what was happening in industry and you know, continuing to push my body to the max of 65 you know, hours a week for over a decade, my body broke down and right. I got sick, uh, nearly died a few times and you know, realized what the benefits of a mind-body connection are and how I can be far more productive maintaining a mind-body connection better than I ever did working 65, 70 hours a week. And that's a narrative that we live in the society is that, you know, how I was living and how I was working was praised. You yes, go, of course. You, you go into the entrepreneurial community and that's a badge of honor. Oh yeah. Bragging rights on how little sleep you have. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah, so, so, but why did you, I mean, so you went out, you went, you dropped out, you went to Costa Rica, you saw that you had a lot of privilege and you were squandering that. You came back, uh, you went into uni, but you also 
got into the startup world. Mm. Um, but you behaved in the entrepreneurial startup mentality of, like you said, 65 hours a week or whatever it was. Yet you ended up in a breakdown. Mm. I'm trying to understand this connection between what happened in Costa Rica by the realization of, oh my goodness, these people take, these people would give anything to have what I'm taking for granted. Mm. And then doing exactly, it seems like doing exactly uh, more of that. Well, I was coming also from a place of, you know, traveling to a lot of parts of the world and getting experience on how different people live and always coming from a place of being a social entrepreneur and, you know, creating an enterprise that we have an office in North America as well as in Nepal where we assist uh, children in rural parts of you know, the, the Himalayas that are on the verge of dropping out of school and then entering the, um, you know, the child labor market and mm -hmm. eventually getting trafficked into the human traffic industry in uh, India. So trying to, and this is a lot of what Rhiannon does in her business, is having this you know, profit motive, but then also having a parallel giving back in that process and then watching what I was doing when I was, you know, in industry around the height of the credit crisis, the question that I wanted to answer made me transition towards academia further is why is the human doing this? What causes cognitively humans to behave in this particular way? So, mm -hmm. I was always interested in delving in that and then being in the roles that I was in an observational kind of way, trying to understand, okay, this is, you know, starting to be more of an ethnography. It was, mm -hmm. I'm living this and I can see in my point of view and my perspective with the, the academic work that I'm doing on the side can allow me to, you know, present an interesting view. Mm -hmm. And, and there's all kinds of places that just opened up and all kinds of great stuff we can unpack. And, I'm, and I want to go a little bit further on it, but Rhiannon, I want to flip to you for a moment, because like I said earlier, you and I both grew up in poverty around, you know, around addiction and violence and crime and all those kinds of things. And you ended up um, very much in the financial world and very much sort of toe to toe with, uh, shall we say, uh, the people involved in 2008's nonsense. Um, talk to us about where you came from and your transition. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Toronto. My mother was a single mom. Um, we, you know, did not have a lot of means, a lot of money. Um, I was, you know, living all over the place. I was with my grandma and my uncle for periods of time. I was with my mother and her uh, then partner, there was addiction in all the households that I was in, alcohol, mm. drugs, uh, violence, um, only child ended up being, um, you know, really much part of that cycle. And from a very young age, because I had so much freedom and there, everyone was so focused on, you know, themselves and getting by that people weren't really watching what I was doing. And so I sure. really felt like I was passed through an education system that didn't really pay attention to me. Um, I was struggling early on with school, reading different things, but kept being sort of pushed through another grade. So I started to lose a lot of confidence 
confidence in my abilities and self. And I started True. to find that confidence amongst other people who were broken like me. I started mm -hmm. hanging around with kids who were dabbling with drugs and alcohol really early. Um, I started getting into what was the, you know, rave scene at the time, uh, doing a lot of drugs and, um, and, and being kicked out of school by grade 10. And I had, um, uh, I guess, my first awakening at 15 years old. Um, I woke up one morning. I don't know what it was, but I looked into the mirror. I saw my eyes, sunken, hollow eyes of a very young girl. And I saw a little glimpse of something that was a match to something in my mom's eyes, um, that was a match to something in the other women in my family. And I thought, no, I don't want to go there. Um, I don't want to repeat this. And so, you know, for me, it was getting back in school, but school wasn't a place where I found a lot of comfort the way no. that I thought. And the, you know, I had a deep emotional intelligence growing up in a home of addiction. You know how to manipulate yourself and the situation in order to fit in. If you need to be silent, you know when to be silent. When it's time to speak, you know when to speak. And I just had, I felt so deeply, um, I didn't, everything felt so surface level in the way that the system was designed. And it really took me until getting to university where I started to actually feel like I might have some real ideas. I might actually be smarter than I think I am. I might actually be able to um, have a voice here and change maybe the way people see people like me or a group that I represented. Um, so getting in with the Economic Club of Canada was a sheer out of luck mystery. I would have never, ever in a million years thought that that's where I would have ended up. I was very much going down that trajectory. And this happens with, I think some of, I don't want to say brainwashing, but in our post-secondary system, the liberalization of the way that we teach. And I grew up in that sort of very liberal humanities art space. Business was not seen as something that was attractive or good or valuable or socially conscious. Um, so mm. it was really interesting to get this job offer at the Economic Club of Canada coming from that background, but also coming from where I came from um, in poverty. And so when I entered into that world, I was fascinated by it. It was like, I felt like someone had snuck me in the back door and mm. I couldn't believe, you know, what I was learning and what I was seeing. But in many, many ways, you know, what people think happens there happens on the other side as well. And I really started to be able to see some of also the similarity between different groups and that, you know, we are all so damaged and in this together in so many ways. I mean, it can express itself in different ways, but we are. And I became fascinated with learning. I became fascinated with understanding the system that I now found myself in. Um, I had the privilege of working with very senior level executives and CEOs and getting to know. And, you know, some people are great and some people aren't, but that's in any group. That's in any space. And, you know, it's, where I think I came with the biggest um, sort of awakening or questioning is I was told that I was 
an anomaly that I had broken the system, that I was right. somebody who represented what it means to get out. I was economically successful. I was moving up in my career. Um, but at the same time, I was breaking down. At that same moment, I was breaking down and there was an erosion of my sense of self and of trying to fit into something that I didn't feel I fit into. Um, and what really came down to it is when I was at the height of, I guess, my success in my career, um, I had then, you know, bought the Economic Club of Canada and had taken it over as a young woman. And people were like, who is this, you know, kid? Um, and how is this all happening? Uh, and I got to a point where um, even what I had, I didn't believe I was worthy of having. I mm. hadn't, I hadn't done all of the work that needed to happen in order to get into a place of deservingness where I could even understand the opportunity that was in front of me because I kept, you know, pushing it away as I accepted it. Um, so, you know, it's all to say that I think there's a lot that has to happen internally in each of us individually in order to get to a space where we can be the architects of a new system. It's mm -hmm. a personal journey uh, to get there and to get that understanding, I believe. Mm -hmm.